0: Welcome to the National Trust Gardens Podcast. I'm Alan Power, the Head Gardener at Stourhead in Wiltshire. And this is the second of our three-part series, bringing you the secrets behind one of Britain's most beautiful gardens. Today I'm at Croome Park in Worcestershire, a wonderful 18th century landscape garden designed by Capability Brown and the Earl at the time, decorated with 18th century garden features and its centerpiece, a beautiful Palladian house. It's overlooked by the magnificent Malvern Hills in the distance. Today I'm here to find out what makes this place so special. It may once have been a boggy marsh, but it's where one of the world's greatest landscape gardeners cut his teeth in the 18th century. Croom has had many uses over the last century, not just as a wonderful place to visit. The uses have been diverse and wide-ranging. It was a secret wartime airbase at one stage, it's been a boys' school, it's been a Hare Krishna institution, and it was overlaid with intensive farmland for quite a long time. In the 18th century, this was the very first estate that was created in its entirety by the landscape gardener Capability Brown. But its recent history has left marks on the landscape. The National Trust have been working really hard to restore the gardens to their 18th century style since 1996. I'm standing near the visitor centre at the northern end of the estate where we're sheltered from the wind and I'm meeting Catherine Alker, the head gardener at Croom. Now Catherine, you've been here a while, haven't you?
1: Yes, hi Alan. Uh, I've been here just about ten years now it's changed enormously over the past few centuries and is still changing massively now and what what we're doing here is restoring the vision of capability brown um, along with the sixth earl of coventry to transform what was quite an unproductive piece of land into a beautiful landscaped designed garden with beautiful pasture and yeah a wonderful landscape
0: catherine today i have the privilege of you taking me around your garden and what I really want to try and get today is is more inspiration from Capability Brown's kind of winter landscape work that he did. Great. And
1: we'll start off with a walk down the Wilderness Walk.
0: Catherine, we're standing looking at Brown's amazing work. And this is what thrills me about 18th century landscape gardens. They're just stunning they take your breath away when you emerge from a dark surrounded protected walk like we just have and you see a view like this across the English landscape and though, although immediately it's not it's not obvious the efforts that went into creating this landscape it's it's there in the detail for me as a gardener I start looking at the efforts from history the huge cedar trees that were planted strategically around the estate to guide your eyes to particular views and then I'm looking down at the efforts that you're making nowadays as as a garden team I can see young ambitious trees planted and surrounded with tree guards but the whole thing sits magnificently below the Malvern Hills in the distance and we're lucky enough to catch a little bit of November sunshine today so What we can see is the shadows stretching across the landscape and it's looking absolutely amazing.
1: It's been a huge amount of work but um, we're we're really pleased with how everything's progressing and how the restoration's coming along. Standing here in 1996, what we would have seen is an arable crop. Nearly all of the parkland trees had disappeared um, either due to Dutch elm disease because there were an awful lot of elms across the parkland Or simply because the farmer had wanted to get the most productivity from the land and and ploughed very close to the trees or removed them.
0: Now, the the landscape was dressed quite with a lot of detail, wasn't it, in the 18th century? There was quite a plant collection at Croombe.
1: It was an amazing plant collection, yeah. The the 6th Earl of Coventry was really an obsessed man. He loved plants and spent an absolute fortune bringing in plants from across the globe. We've got lots of evidence in the archive, the plant bills um, and also a guidebook. from 1824 that shows us uh, that they were bringing in plants from the Far East, from the Americas, from uh, all across the globe really, and, and that was driven by the Earl's passion for planting.
0: And I know you're working really hard at the moment aren't you planting trees? How many trees do you reckon you've planted in the 10 years you've been here?
1: We have certainly planted thousands I'd say easily over 10,000 trees and then shrubs uh, throughout the shrubberies we've also done a huge amount of planting.
0: It must have been amazing for you the first day you saw livestock wandering through the trees and the tree guards.
1: It's lovely and the cattle down on Church Hill just add a a beautiful sense of scale. The tenant farmers now got the right breeds of cattle so they really look part of the 18th century landscape.
0: How on earth did he get it from being a boggy marsh to the magnificence of Croom?
1: Well when Brown arrived here, Croom Court, he was initially commissioned by the Sixth Earl to actually work on the court rather than just the landscape. So he would have seen a, a much smaller Croom Court, a brick building But also sitting in quite an unproductive area of land, there was a church nearby to the court, um, as well as a little hamlet of buildings and a few farm buildings. But typical Brown, that wasn't quite right for him. So he he expanded the court, put towers on the end and um, enveloped the building in the beautiful bath stone that we can see today. But also he wanted a much more open view from the court across the landscape. So the church was demolished and the uh, hamlet was moved about a mile away and then Brown himself redesigned the church and this is the church that we can see today.
0: And it was all about creating the kind of utopian effect on the landscape, wasn't it? Making it that perfect picture.
1: That's right, and Brown, I think, was, he was at the start of his career when he worked at, at Croom. Um, the Earl took uh, a bit of a gamble on him, and it certainly paid off, and he became one of the country's most famous landscape designers.
0: So I'm meeting with Michael Smith, the general manager at Croom. Now, general managers for the National Trust do all sorts of stuff. They look after the conservation ambitions for the property, the finance for the property, the visitor experience at the property and every aspect of the management of the property. But we're standing outside a hut at Croom today, Michael. Can you just
2: describe where we are. Well this hut and there are many huts like this spread out across the landscape at Kroom is part of RAF Defford which in the 1940s was an RAF base instrumental in the development of airborne radar systems. It was all top secret at the time and it's a quite phenomenal story.
0: It is, isn't it? Can you tell us a little bit more about the kind of the RAF impact on the on Croom's landscape here?
2: Yeah, there, there was colossal change at croome in the nineteen forties, and of course those wide open pastures that Brown had set out here in the eighteenth century were the ideal uh, place to create an airbase. And Croom had three vast interlocking runways, and a village sprang up here, which eventually accommodated almost three thousand service personnel. So this sprang up over a very short time, and here, with over two hundred aircraft on station, um, are British electronics experts were kitting out newly developed radar systems into each and every type of plane, and then testing them, trialing them. uh, Here was a whole uh, amount of sort of counter-propaganda that went out. The story about pilots' uh, eyesight being helped by eating carrots was an invention that came out of RAF Defford to throw um, our enemies off the trail of what was really happening here. But through the efforts of the the young service people here, servicemen and service women, developments were made that were instrumental in securing the Allied victory in World War II. And Michael, this this museum, this ambulance shed was nearly lost at one stage, wasn't it? It was. We caught these buildings just in the nick of time. And in the 1940s, they were thrown up in a great hurry as temporary structures, you know, they're half a brick thick. And when we took on the management of the estate in 1996. We didn't really realise the significance of them and they were all boarded up in various states of decline covered with brambles and scrub. Um, but gradually as we got to meet the veterans of the air base we understood how important they were. We realised that there was another very important story to tell. Has there been many more significant changes in the history of the landscape at Krum? There have, and I think there's a tendency to see the 1940s developments here as an anomaly. But even after the 1940s, other communities have made the very most of what Kroom has to offer, including uh, devotees of Krishna. And in uh, 1979, with funding help from George Harrison, Krishna devotees acquired Kroom Court and renamed it Chatenya College. The natural landscape here has always been appealing and a draw to whoever has called Kroom home
0: it's fantastic isn't it and these people all of these people were were building what is the countryside around here now you know what is the heart of the countryside it's such a beautiful place to come it's been really fantastic
2: cheers Alan thanks
0: Catherine this is a bit better down here isn't it out of the wind and we've captured you know a little bit of warm sunshine kind of on our backs which is really nice this time of year isn't it and we're in November you and I as gardeners we're saying goodbye to autumn colour and we're welcoming in the winter and do you find this time of year particularly exciting at Crew?
1: There's still lots, lots going on here. Um, part of Brown's design actually included an evergreen shrubbery. So at this time of year, it's actually the perfect place to be because you've still got flowering shrubs, scented shrubs, and it was designed as a winter walk, so somewhere to enjoy once the main summer planting had finished, really.
0: And the structure within those borders is quite amazing as well, isn't it? You get the berries, you get the foliage, you get the, the, the scent of the foliage in places, but the way he structured the borders was quite fascinating as well.
1: That's right. Um, it's quite a windy day and um, what we've got at the back of the shrubbery is uh, a line of evergreen trees um, that would have protected from the prevailing winds so that the plants inside the shrubbery, the, the real interesting stuff, um, was protected. It had a little microclimate and it could flourish within that shrubbery even though it's quite exposed out in the parkland. We've got plants that will give off scent in winter and early spring um, and even some things that are very early flowering. So, for example, Daphnes, which have not only beautiful little pink flowers, but amazing scent as well. And it just fills the shrubbery.
0: And it's nice, isn't it? Because it's predominantly evergreen plants through here. You're not reminded of the end of a season. You're not reminded that summer's gone and autumn's gone. You're you're surrounded by plants that are constantly alive.
1: That's right. You know, Portuguese laurel. With beautiful glossy leaves, hollies. Um, there's one just over there with bright red berries. Um, so loads still to keep us interested throughout the winter.
0: And the rosemary is one that is really striking for me because you know I, I'm a bit of a touchy-feely plant person. So I'll always, if if I if I know there's a scent coming from it, I'll go and grab it, and you know I carry that scent round for a while. But there's a few kind of non-standard shrubs in here isn't there?
1: There are yeah we've used rosemary here we know that they planted rosemary in the shrubberies um, and we also um, have some sage which hasn't lasted quite so well in the harsh winters I've got jasmine for that that spring flowering brightness of yellow colour throughout the winter gelder rose with bright glossy red berries as well we've also got a couple of witch hazels the hammermelis, um, which have the really um, sort of spidery like yellow flowers and again some of those have fantastic scent. In the records there were also hundreds of different ericas, so hundreds of different heathers. We haven't quite got to the stage of replanting that particular section yet we'll need to sort out the the soil for that because they need ericaceous yeah. compost and even in the records there's an example of them bringing in tons and tons of ericaceous soil to plant those those heathers in so they used
0: to make it themselves and I've read in a few archives in places how you know they would go to a, a a local timber mill and they would use the the sawdust from pine trees to kind of add to the add to the soil along with some kind of Um, charcoal and that kind of thing and cinders to actually you know increase the acidity level in it so it's they were real kind of Mm. garden scientists back then. Yeah
1: chemistry in the garden.
0: Well (laughs) it's nice that variegated holly is really striking isn't it because and and the birds haven't got to the berries yet I'm sure they'll discover them over the (laughs) next month or so as the temperatures drop but they'll get in there.
1: Yeah and uh, we've also got broom um, lots of different pines as well there were a huge number of pines in the archive records, in the plant bills. So that gives us a nice bit of structure throughout the shrubbery as well.
0: Fantastic, isn't it? It's, just, it is, it's a living library of stuff, isn't it? And yeah. back then they were just learning about plants as well all the time. It's, it's amazing. The more I'm learning about Croom today, the more fascinating it gets. The depth of knowledge and the depth of history and the depth of nature conservation here is genuinely, you know, it's moving. You know, it's a wonderful thing to hear.
1: Well, it's been a delight to show you around.
0: I've left behind the evergreen shrubbery and I'm heading down towards the lake under this dry arch bridge to meet Hugh Warwick, the area ranger at Croom. Hi Hugh, how are you doing?
3: Yeah, good, thank you. How are you?
0: Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. So your role here as area ranger, what does it involve?
3: The main focus for my work here is across the parkland and woodland, so I'm responsible for looking after those, trying to uh, maintain the good conservation work that we do and to uh, do the restoration work as well to try to get this place back to how brown first envisaged it
0: so parkland and woodland you say but actually we've just come under this dry art bridge and the first thing i met with is water
3: yes we've got a mile and three quarter long artificial river here at Croom, and um, that's all well within the parkland and uh, we try our best to manage that
0: and have you had to do any kind of silt management or anything like that with the lakes here
3: yeah certainly when um, when the national trust took Croom on in 1996 the full length of the river here was almost entirely silted up. You could walk across the river in quite a few places. That, in its own right, was a a really good thing um, in many ways for uh, for lots of habitat, lots of wildlife, um, using that wading birds and so forth. So we knew that for the restoration, we had to restore it back to a river. It had to have water flowing through it, but we also needed to, to do it as sensitively as we can so as not to just destroy this habitat. So what we did before we um, we dredged the river out, we actually created two new wetland areas on the estate here uh, and those helped to, to mitigate against the work we're doing. So we now have two really nice quiet wetland areas ideal for wading birds
0: but it's amazing isn't it in, in your role you must see it because you're really close to it but the minute you add that water element to a garden you all of a sudden the diversity of insects bird life it completely changes doesn't it
3: um yeah we have monitoring programs here so uh, we have volunteers who are trained to monitor and my assistant ranger has just recently been doing some um, water quality testing you've got somewhere there that the larvae can grow and and then that goes to Uh, So you get the insects then and then that feeds the birds and the bats and the wildlife.
0: So we're leaving the Dry Arch Bridge behind and in complete contrast to the enclosure of that bridge we've just come out and there is this magnificent view. I can see two bridges, I can see what looks like an island but in true brown fashion I don't know whether it's an island until I get further around the pathways because it's still full of mystery although it's a big view. Do you have any winter migratory birds that come in and make use of this wonderful pond?
3: Well, we have had an osprey passing through, you? believe it or not, yeah. We've also had hawfinches here. Um, we have field fairs and red wings. Uh, so, yeah, we get quite a few migratory species passing through. And I think we've become a bit of a kind of a local haven for wildlife because we're um, a nice green space. There's, um, there's the wildflower meadows and so forth. And as you say, the body of water and all the insects that that provides.
0: Well, Hugh, thanks a million. My pleasure. It's been a wonderful day at Croom today, and I'm finishing my day in one of the most stunning views I've captured all day, standing at the rotunda, looking out over a glorious landscape, with the river flowing in the distance. One of the people who is very close to Croom is with me now, Malcolm Walford, who has spent his life working and living on the estate at Croom for the last 68 years. Good afternoon. Malcolm, it's a pleasure to meet you.
4: You've got quite a CV at Croom, haven't you? Yes, I have. Um, I started in 1953, after five years at RAF Defford. Still semi-employed by the Croom Estate Trustees. My job still in, tells me to be clerk of works. That was my position since 1986. You're, it's not just you, is it? Your family's worked. My my grandparents have been on the estate since 1800s. My father was... When he left school at 13, he went as second groom at Purton Court, which is all part of the Coventry family. Yeah. And my Uncle Ern was head groom, and my Uncle Bob was head forester on the estate. Wow. So So we're, we're standing by a spectacular view out into the countryside. Beautiful view. And what's striking me, Malcolm, is that it's really your home, isn't it? It is my home. Yeah. It is my home, and whether it comes to flood, fire or whatever... I've always been there for Croom and that's been part of my job. You obviously feel it's really important to kind of preserve and conserve Croom oh, for the God, future. God, yes. It's got to be. You know, it's got to be preserved. What better place in Worcestershire is you've got stood here looking at Croom River um, where hours and hours we've, we've gone to the end of the river when all the grounds here were ploughed up. Yeah. You know, it's not always been grassland here. This was ploughed up in the 60s and in front of the church, And it was part of our job, when the farmer complained the river was too high, we used to take the old van, the A35 Austin van, down to the other end of the river and change what we call the floodboard out. Sounds a bit like my job. <laughs> do you know I do
0: bits of that at Stourhead. We have a dam we look after, and there's Saturdays, Sundays, evenings, mornings that I'm out to check the levels. And yeah. do you know what I love about working in historic environments is that there are some jobs that can never change. No. it's so it's so important, isn't it, to yeah. so kind of capture memories and capture
4: oh, scenes yes. and
0: to yeah. to share it and hand yeah. it on to the next
4: generation but somehow. It's wonderful, it? Eric Crew, but hopefully I've I'm passed on a lot of information, like I keep finding photographs for Catherine and one thing and another. So
0: And tell tell me, you mentioned you, it's 68 years in total, but five years of that was spent with the RAF? RAF Defford, yeah. And yeah. how did your transition from the RAF onto the estate happen? In a pub. In a pub. Best in a place pub for everything to happen, isn't it?
4: And my uncle Bob came in one night because we'd already been informed Defford was closing. Yeah. And my Uncle Bob come in there in the pub one night and we were talking, and he said, there's a labourer's job going at Crewe," And I wrote a letter and it went to Colonel Osbert Smith, who was grandson of the Ninth Earl. And he said, are you going to be strong enough for this job? (laughs) And the first day I started, I went home on the lunchtime and I said to my dad, I'm finishing tonight. Really? And I thought, I can't do with this. He said, you stick it. No, I did and 63 years 63 later 63 years later yeah. looking over Croom River on a lovely night
0: and you're still in love with the place of course I am Yeah,
4: I always will be
0: Malcolm it's been a pleasure thank, thank you, you very much indeed thank you for listening to the National Trust Gardens podcast if you've enjoyed this podcast you can subscribe or follow on your podcast app for more Next month, I'll be at another great garden for festive magic at Sissinghurst in Kent. So stay warm and enjoy exploring, and we'll see you next time.
1: I'm Bethany Hughes. I've been visiting National Trust properties all my life. But in this series of podcasts, I'm going beyond the delights of teas and topiary to reveal the surprising European roots of some of the most splendid sites in England. You can subscribe to my series by searching for Bethany Hughes' Ten Places, Europe and Us, on your podcast app.